A warning to all listeners. This is a podcast about movies. There will be spoilers. Obviously. If you don't want to know what happens in a movie whose title appears in the title of the podcast, you shouldn't listen. Obviously. Heed our advice. Welcome back. Welcome! To another episode of For the Love of Pavlov. I'm Norm. I'm Katie. And I'm introducing us this week, or this time. <laughs> we have no sense of time we're, as we're far not as on releases. A schedule. But I'm doing the introduction, which must mean I got to pick the movie. And uh, this was a real surprise for me. I was about to call it a dark horse. And that <laughs> just felt way too on the nose. But I chose 2011's War Horse. Steven Spielberg, wartime, horse time. It's a... Masterpiece. True masterpiece. Uh, World War I, I think epic is not an unfair term. We didn't realize it was directed by Spielberg until we started watching it. I gotta confess, I was wrong almost entirely across the board on this movie. So was I. I remembered it coming out to not a lot of fanfare, which is correct. Like, critics loved it. But it wasn't a hit. It didn't do well at the box office. But more than that, I was under the impression that Spielberg just produced it. Because 2011 is also when he was doing The Adventures of Tintin. You remember that one? <laughs> yeah. The sort of spiritual successor to the Uncanny Valley Polar Express. <laughs> like You're not wrong there. <laughs> weird, gross, plastic skin thing. So I didn't realize that while all the animation was being completed, he was making this movie. I thought he was just a producer. Well, and um, what was great about watching this is it was one that neither of us had seen. Yes. So we were coming in fresh and just, you know, last time we came into a movie fresh was MVP and that was yeah. a disaster and we were so tired of shitting on movies. And so <laughs> coming into this one and it being really good was so refreshing and now I feel like less of an asshole because I don't think I'm going to shit as much all over this one. No, this was, I mean, I don't know what you're going to say about the animal portrayals in this one. I've got some cool info, Norm. (laughs) I believe you will. But on its own merits as a movie, this is like five stars from me. And I thought it was going to be, I mean, it is very horse-centric, but it's also just a war movie. Like, I mean, the title says that, but I don't think I realized just the degree to which war and the intensity of that plays into it. No, that's, that's exactly it. For one thing, it's not rated R. And so... You know, one questions, well, how gritty are they going to be in a war movie? Forgetting that the American rating system only gives it an R if there's real nudity, like extensive nudity, pervasive profanity, or blood. There were no horse boobies in this one. There's no there's no nudity. I don't remember there being much, if any, profanity. And while there is war violence, they filmed it in such a way that there's almost no blood. It's not a uh, Saving Private Ryan kind of situation. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that it's going to be compared and has been compared to Saving Private Ryan so much. That's so unfair. It's unfair, but it's also just such a different movie. Yes. And I feel like you see that almost instantly in how it's filmed. Yeah. I gotta ask you, did you watch, or just living with your parents, did your parents watch westerns a lot growing up? Maybe. (laughs) I don't... (laughs) Didn't make an impact? (laughs) It didn't make an impact. I had more of an impact... With 
like some of the like Star Wars I remember watching with sure, my dad. Sure. And I know that other things were on TV, but I can't say that westerns were prolific in the sense of popularity. I I was really hoping that you would at least have some frame of reference because this movie is filmed like a, a classic 60s, 70s John Ford Western. Mm. Like if you've seen, and most John Wayne movies are basically carbon copies. <laughs> uh, John Ford basically made John Wayne, right? Mm. John Wayne, would we call him an actor? <laughs> you know, he's he's basically a Tom Cruise of a time. He's always playing himself. He's almost always playing the same character. You can kind of say based on context if he's being more heroic or more villainous, but he's nearly always a a hero, except when he's Genghis Khan. Whatever, we look past that. But you recognize that period of Western cinematography because it's all shot on location, a lot of artificial light to try to capture mood, and it's big sweeping vistas, and there's a lot of depth and deep focus. Mm. So... Like you'll have grass on a prairie and you can see the individual blades of grass up front. And then way off in the distance, there's a person, you know, leading their horse or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly how War Horse is filmed. Mm. Lots of tripod shots. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of the trench warfare, not as much as you might expect for Mm -hmm. a World War I movie. Yeah. So there's like a little bit of that handheld camera that really, you know, gives you that documentary style from Saving Private Ryan. But whereas Saving Private Ryan is very, very sepia, you know, it's it's not quite black it's and white. It's really washed out. It's washed out. It's muted. And the color really sets the mood. Yes. And I think the color sets the mood in Warhorse, but this is like full watercolor palette. Mm. There's gorgeous, just glowing orange and purple sunsets. You, it, It's also a little bit... I wouldn't call it a kid's movie, but it is... I wouldn't either. I also wouldn't call it an adventure movie, which is what I thought it was going to be going into it. Like, Agreed, yeah. Oh, a boy and his horse surviving World War One. You know, like, completely misrepresenting the yeah. horror of mis- of World War One. No, this is, <laughs> this is a horrifying portrayal of World War One. Yes. It's been famously said that the, it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, because once you start depicting the action of combat... It's intrinsically exciting, and it's hard to be anti-war when you're making it look exciting. Well, and there's always the sense of, if you win, then yay, you're winners. Yeah, And that's going to perpetuate, like, oh, look, the war can have good outcomes. Yeah. It's like, but what at, at what cost, you guys? Exactly. And I think that is the theme of this whole movie. Because it does show trench warfare, it does show a cavalry charge, and there's elements of excitement, but they're always immediately punctured by... This is not worth it. Look at the expense. It's very visceral when it shows the cost of war. And it's very well paced, too. It's a two and a half hour movie that doesn't really seem like it's that long. And I think that's due to the pacing from each like chapter in this horse's mm-hmm. life during the war. Yeah. And like you said, it the real protagonist here is the horse. Yes. Which is As very interesting. I mean, it's a good choice, but... <laughs> I thought it was going to be more the boy and his horse, mm-hmm. or we should say Albert and Joey, as the characters yes. are called. Yeah. Although Joey goes through owners a little bit and is called various things <laughs> over the course <laughs> of, of the story. So a little bit of background that I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. It was adapted from a book. It was, yeah. This doesn't really come up, but the guy who who wrote the book... Michael Morpurgo. One of the key inspirations he had was... 
uh, I think that it might be English terminology, but there was a, a young lad who had a stammer, right? Mm-hmm. Th- that's what they call it in England, oh, okay. but a speech impediment of some kind. <laughs> okay. And what was noticed is while he was training horses in this time period, when he would talk to the horse, it would go away. Like he could speak flawlessly mm. when he was working with his horse. That would be equine therapy, but animal therapy in general seems to be yeah. just one of those kind of marvels. I think we'll touch on that a lot in many different respects. It's going to come up. Yeah. So it doesn't actually feature in the film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you can almost sense the absence of that because Albert, the main, the boy, the main human character, kind of the guy on the poster, he is very sensitive, Mm -hmm. clearly. He's been fascinated with Joey pretty much since he first laid eyes on him. Yeah. And really wants to work with his horse. Not, I don't want to say he really wants to own the horse, but he really wants to look after the horse. He wants that relationship. Yeah, he really bonds almost immediately with Joey. And it looks pretty mutual the way it's portrayed. He doesn't appear to have a speech impediment or any other kind of disability. He's just really opened up Mm -hmm. as a person. He just seems to be more fully realized when he's working with Joey. Well, and people are criticizing Joey at multiple points throughout the movie because he's he's a thoroughbred mix. And so they, they buy him for work and it's like, well... A light horse like that's not going to plow. Yeah. And our friend Albert is like, give him a chance, you guys. Well, that's kind and of the, so, the first bit of adversity, right? Yeah. Is his father is a proud man who, well, he's injured. We're given to assume that he was injured in the Boer War. Mm-hmm. So kind of the last big English colonial conflict down yeah, in yeah. South Africa. So he he walks with a limp. And we're still in that time where you kind of have sharecroppers and tenant farmers. So they don't own their land. They have to pay rent to this, you know, Scrooge McDuckish character played by <laughs> David Thewlis, who's hard to hate. That's a charming man. <laughs> Beautiful ginger mustache. And yeah, they're off to the horse auction to get what was supposed to be a workhorse. So a big draft horse who can pull a plow and work the land that they have. And in just... An explosion of pride, our injured father, war hero, buys... What is a thoroughbred? It's just a racing horse? Yeah, thoroughbreds are considered light horses. So those are the horses ideal for racing. They're... More um, petite, They're tall, of? they're lean, they're fast. Gotcha. Um, and so that's that kind of tends to be their purpose. They're high endurance. I thought in the movie that Joey was pure thoroughbred, but looking at the book and then, haha, the Wikipedia, mm-hmm. um, it seems that that he's a thoroughbred mix. Gotcha. So again, I'm not other than hearing the word thoroughbred. Maybe I missed the word mix in the movie, but for all intents and purposes, he's not viewed as a draft horse. So yeah. people are making fun of him. Of you're gonna make that thing work? Oh my god! Like. That's just, you're just going to kill that horse. Yeah. Have fun with that. You're, you're going to kill that horse. You're going to go broke. You're going to lose the farm. Like, why would you do this? And yep. by all accounts, he completely overpays for an inappropriate horse for the purposes yeah. uh, he's he has for it. And what's really funny is during that same auction scene, they bring out a Clydesdale, which like yeah. famously, iconically recognizable oh, workhorse. I love them. And you see them side by side. And for a guy like me who knows basically nothing about horses. You're giving me too much credit on horses too, bro. (laughs) But still, (laughs) they're all saying, oh, that was a bad investment. You shouldn't have bought this thoroughbred. Or even if it was a mix, which they're a little vague about it. 
but you see it next to the Clydesdale, and yeah. it's immediately apparent how big of a screw-up this is. Have you ever stood next to a Clydesdale? Oh, God, no. It's terrifying and awe-inspiring. I feel like if I ever saw a moose, it would be a similar experience of like, I know you're big, okay. I have seen you, but holy shit, this is a big animal. <laughs> but I don't think I'm ever going to be that close to a moose, nor do I want to. But so, I've been next to and touching Clydesdales, and it's it's kind of intimidating. First time I ever went to Yellowstone, we dr- we almost hit a moose on the two-lane highway, like mm. going into Yellowstone. So it was, you know, that twilight period. So visibility was really low. Mm-hmm. And we were in kind of a raised 4 by 4 pickup. Mm. So like big truck, you're... You know, it's like standing on the roof of a normal car is sitting in one of these trucks. You know, they're huge. Yeah. And we were driving and it's one of those things where, you know, you're going 60 miles an hour or whatever. We didn't even see it until it was right next to us because mm-hmm. it's dark and it's it's kind of yeah. blending in. But when a moose is right next to you in that big of a car and it's eye level with you, you really appreciate what an enormous animal this is. Yeah, Totally. So if that compares even remotely to a workhorse like a Clydesdale, I can I can appreciate how if you hit it with a truck, you lose. Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of crazy stories about that. So I just looked this up real quick yeah. out of curiosity since Moose came up. You know, very basic Google search. Who knows sources? But kind of in my head as well as like what you're talking about, Moose tend they're Likely bigger than a Clydesdale, but it seems like a Clydesdale could give them a run for its money. Really? Yeah. Clydesdale are... Oh, I love them so much. That is a big, big horse. And for those of you who don't know what we're we're talking about, the Clydesdales, I believe, are the ones who famously pull the wagon in Budweiser commercials yes. and in their print advertising and everything. So yeah. that's what a cart horse is, right? It, right? it pulls big, heavy pieces of equipment. And for those of you who don't give a shit about Budweiser, they're the giant horses with fluffy feet. Yeah. <laughs> they got the kind of like bell-bottom looking feet. Yes. With the, with the fuzz. Favorite. Giant, giant hooves. Good God. But I really appreciated that point of reference so that you can see like, oh yeah, this guy this guy really screwed up in, in buying mm-hmm. a non-draft horse. Yeah, it was a good physical work. cue. But Albert is over the moon because he's in love with this horse. Now, <laughs> I have to ask, and I doubt you'll have an answer. What I, challenge? Why do people love to talk about how beautiful horses are? <laughs> Why that, Why horses specifically? That is such a like existential question, dude. But you know what I'm talking about. Totally. People see just like a clean looking horse with a nice, like, I'll yeah. admit the color is pretty, but it's just like, oh, what a beautiful, just the groan yeah. is what gets me. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, oh, that's a beautiful animal. Off oh, the top of my head, the couple, horse. the couple of things I'm thinking of are one, they're domesticated. We have a long history with them. Yeah, but no one's um, ever groaned about a chicken. In my presence. Uh, I think oh, I have. What a head. Yeah, you're weird, though, and you're into birds. Thanks. But I'm saying, like, people will say that's a well-bred dog, like that's yeah. a healthy-looking dog. They'll appreciate a thoroughbred, not a thoroughbred, but a Any purebred kind of dog. Yeah. Cats, you know, a good calico coat, people will say, oh, you know, that's a really nice coat. But I feel like no one just orgasmically groans. <laughs> About any other domestic animal the way they do, they do about horses. I wonder And they do it's... it in the movie, and you did it. Mm. I noticed it when they trot this thing out at auction. You're just like, oh. Oh, man. What a beautiful horse. Fucking calling me like, out what, over what here. What is this? Part of me wonders if it has to do with just the way they look compared to other domestics in the sense that they're tall, they're lean, they're fast. Mm-hmm. They're a working animal as opposed to, you know... 
you have your other farm animals, cows for milk and meat. You got right. your pigs, your chickens, your ducks. Whereas your horses are your right-hand man. They're the ones helping you. So they're, they look vastly different from every other farm animal. So it's the, and they're helping you. It's the power. kill these other kill and eat these other animals. <laughs> <laughs> to an extent, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I think what I'm hearing from you is it's it's not just that they are attractive colors and attractive textures, mm-hmm. but they're muscular, and you can see like it's a yeah. big animal. You can see the muscle. You can see how hard it can work, and that's impressive. You blend power and beauty, and that. That makes you just grunt when you see it. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think there's also horse. like, I don't know. There's something elegant to me about watching a horse trot or canter. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's just like it's weird body proportions. Have you ever tried to draw a horse? It is hard to get that shit right. Yeah. It's it's my understanding that <laughs> horses are famed art subjects because they can show off technical mm-hmm. prowess. Totally. But people also just love a drawing of a horse. They love a picture of a horse. <laughs> and it seems like in any Western, if there's going to be a bond with the horse, there's that weird moment where it's just a horse trotting by so that Shadow you can get fact the good style. Exactly. Yeah. They do this in movies with horses where you just take a minute and go, oh, he's a good guy because he's got a good horse. Anyway, I, I realize love that's horses. a digression. Convoluted but question. Simple question, convoluted answer, I would yeah. say. I don't, yeah. I, I'm still not sure I'm satisfied. You've given me some stuff to think about. Well, I'm but... sorry, Norman. I did not prepare for that question. Well, who can? There's no, <laughs> I feel there's no objective answer to it. It's just weird. <laughs> so anyway, this is when we really start getting to know Joey. Like yes. the movie opens with the birth of Joey. We get lots of just edible shots. They're so gorgeous. The scenery, you can just chew it up. But the, the lighting is beautiful. You get the sweeping vistas, and we're really seeing, uh, I think it's Devonshire in England is where these guys live. Mm-hmm. So just basically picture the Shire. It's Samwise Gamgee. It's that accent. It's that rustic, you know, living off the land period of time. And Joey grows up pretty quickly. They buy him at auction. I mean, he's still a young horse when they buy him. Oh, he's like young. He's- but it, it yeah. falls to Albert to be the one to really train him. He hasn't been broken in or anything. He's just a fresh horse. So one of the first things that we see, though, is when Joey is first being separated from his mother, they're both very resistant to it. We we see Albert approaching Joey when his mother is around, and she seems to kind of put up with it. But when they're being separated, I couldn't tell how much of this was anthropomorphization, really. But they have them you know, whinnying and rearing a little bit and resisting. Is there anything to that? Like, I know that they've got to be somewhat social creatures, but do horses bond to that extent that they would they would feel separation anxiety when they're being separated from someone that they are familiar with or is part of their, like, what do you call it? Herd? Herd. Group? Buddies? Yeah, so horses are very social animals. They do like to stick to their group. There is a type of hierarchy really? um, within horse, horse groups. You have, you know, a certain makeup. You've got like the stallion, you got the mares and their children, that kind of thing. Um, as far as like social behaviors toward one another, you've got nuzzling, mutual grooming, that okay. kind of thing. Okay. Um, as far as like running to each other based on separation, I my guess is that it would depend on context because if you've got someone, you know, with the rope tugging a horse, are they going to try to 
run back or are they going to try to like hurt the person who's pulling right. them? I mean, a horse is a prey animal. Their inclination is to flee. And so it's like they're running back to their buddy. Well, are they doing it distinctly to get to their buddy? Or is it just, I am fleeing. I am going back the direction I came from. So that's a little bit more difficult to answer, but they, they are social. I would imagine that they want to be with their buddies. They don't want to be separated. They do form friendships and bonds. So we see that later on with Topthorn, where I think there's, you know, it, it seems kind of like they're quote unquote rivals when they first are yeah. introduced. Rivals cum friends. And- <laughs> but, you know, I think that kind of shows the hierarchy. There's definitely a lot of anthropomorphization as far as the horse's behavior. So the big one I saw was Young Joey approaches Albert with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mom is watching and then she starts like pawing the ground, which to me very much read like a mom calling her kid back and like pointing at the ground, like come here now. Come like, finish your hay or whatever. Yeah. And but horses paw is like a frustrated behavior. Really? And so it the the way that it comes across is very much, hey, you come over here. That's a stranger when okay. it's more of a frustrated behavior. So it's a real behavior and they're recontextualizing it to try to communicate something else visually. Yes. And the a lot of what I've read from the trainer of this movie is getting the right emotional reaction out of your horses. Right. And that is definitely played up for anthropomorphization, which, you know, you've got a wartime story. It's emotional. Right. But, you know, you've got your horses that are trained to paw the ground. And I think you can use that in any kind of context you want. So it's it's shades of MVP type filmmaking where yeah, yeah. they have horses that can do different behaviors. Mm-hmm. They are natural behaviors, however. Yes. It's just that they are doing natural behaviors on command. And then it's being contextualized and cut together in such a way that it it communicates a different kind of interpersonal communication between the horses than anything that would happen organically. Exactly. And they usually had a couple of horses ready for any given scene mm-hmm. that, you know, knew the new, the same behaviors. And they would swap them out if one got tired, if one was just having an off day. Right. And then the other reason is getting that emotional reaction. If the horses are doing the same behavior in the scene, but one looks more sad than the other, looks more happy right. than the other, you know, based on our human side just, of yeah. emotions. How it plays that's on the camera. one they're going to go with. And the trainer who is named Bobby Lovegren, there was one horse that he thought gave the best emotional performance. Mm-hmm. It's a horse named Finder. Overall, there were 14 horses used to play Joey, but yeah. Finder was kind of his baby. And I think it should be said, 14 different horses. So they had to come up with a look for the mm-hmm. horse with distinctive markings, which actually comes up in the movie. Yes, at the very end. Yeah, where Albert is able to describe the distinctive markings of the horse. But that means there's a hair and makeup team doing makeup on all 14 horses on any given day or however many they need for mm-hmm. a scene yeah. so that they all look like the same horse. Yeah. I, mean, I just think that's cool. Yeah. And I it makes me wonder how many horses actually had the same markings. Like, I don't think the markings are super out of control. Different. I don't know. I don't know horses. But it's just like he's got brown with white socks and a white forehead blaze. Yeah. I don't think that. I don't know. Maybe someone has more info on that. 
Well, um, and to be fair, it's trench warfare. It's World War One. So when he's not plowing, he's running around in war true. zones. So he's covered in mud a lot yeah, of the time. That's a good. Point. So that's probably the hair and makeup. But yeah. Just the the level of attention to continuity detail mm-hmm. in doing animal makeup to me is fascinating. Yeah, and totally. Those again, I keep on making this point, but they're effectively stunt doubles. Mm-hmm. The stunt might be, like you said, mom pawing the ground when she's not actually irritated, yeah. or whoever's playing Joey in a given scene rearing and being very high spirited. But those are those are stunts. Yeah, they've got animal stunt doubles for sure doing this stuff. Yeah, and it by all. Indications Bobby Lovegren has been doing horse training for movies for a long time. He actually purchased Finder after working with him on Seabiscuit. Yeah, that was the other fun bit of trivia. Granted, there's more than one horse playing Joey, but yeah. kind of the main on-camera horse is the same one that played Seabiscuit for mm-hmm. the majority of the filming on Seabiscuit. Yes. So when we say thoroughbred, that's a really good point of reference, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a classic racing horse. Exactly. Yeah. So as Albert is initially trying to build trust, because they already have a little bit of recognition. Right. But there's not trust yeah. per se. And, and horses can recognize different people in different ways. Right. Which and is it's, really cool. It's subtly implied that Joey recognizes Albert, but Joey has also been sold at auction, separated from his mom, and brought back to the farm. Yeah. So what does Albert do to try to (laughs) initiate trust and start the training exercise, but try to feed Joey oats out of a pail? Yep. And he can't get Joey to approach him for the oats. He can't get Joey to let him approach. So he ends up holding out the pail to one side, looking down at the ground. Yeah. And walking backwards and just sort of very discreetly checking over his shoulder periodically to make sure everything's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. I have been around enough high-anxiety dogs and cats and things that I know not making eye contact and not staring at them is a good way to not exacerbate stress. Mm -hmm. But that seems like a pretty big move to be walking backwards toward a giant horse. Mm -hmm. Is there anything there? I mean, a little bit. Horses don't like you to do a dead stare and walk straight at them. You're going to scare them. Sure. Um, As far as walking backwards, I don't... I don't really know. Jury's kind of out. But the thing is, like, Bobby Lovegren was talking about desensitizing horses to human presence, Mm -hmm. like getting them through the process to train these intricate behaviors. And he agreed with me with what I said when I saw this part was, bro, you're jumping too many steps ahead. Like, Mm. of course, he's not going to come eat it out of your the bucket you're holding first time around. What you need to do is, like, stand nearby so that they become comfortable around your presence, like you're no longer a novel object. And then from there, build up. So it's like if you're talking about feeding Joey, have the pail on the ground and you're standing X distance away from it. Visible. Yeah, still visible. And slowly kind of move forward until you can get much, much closer. And then gradually escalate to holding the bucket for him. Okay. Divergence here. I read in an interview that the actor who plays Albert, his name is Jeremy Irvine. Yeah. He was like, I'm not really an animal person, so I'm very skeptical about forming an emotional relationship with a horse. Uh But you know, this ended up being special. And I was sitting there like, of course you weren't an animal person. I can see it on your face. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Which isn't entirely true. I just read that and I was like, boo. (laughs) I think we both 
had a little bit of a problem with Mr. Jeremy's performance. It was his first movie. It was his first movie. But also, but it wasn't great. Spielberg is at the top of his game in this. Spielberg is an excellent director of actors. Yes. He's an excellent director of young actors. I think Jeremy was, what, 20 in this? So not exactly a child actor. But young theatrical background. He doesn't do a bad job. No. It's really hard for me to put my finger on what it was about his performance that had me like not fully empathizing with him. For me, it felt a little like, well, oh, golly gee willikers, look at this horse. There is a lot of that <laughs> which, you know, is, youthful wonder. Which is pretty dated in the sense of like how he delivered these lines. It's hard to say if it was the dialogue, like how would a different actor have done it? But in any case... When he's speaking, it sounds very dated several decades ago. Like I'm, I'm thinking old television type, type yeah. way of delivery. <laughs> well, he's not from Devonshire, so he has, he has to affect the accent. That probably, I he didn't know that. He has to act. Yeah, I didn't know that. And then he has to deal on screen with an animal that, to hear you say it, he's not entirely comfortable with. Yeah. Presumably until toward the end of the shoot. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe some of that comes through. I don't want to, I don't want to dig on him too badly because oh, it's no. not like a distractingly poor performance or anything like that. Yeah. It's, it might also just be the character it that he has to be. play this kid who's just yeah. so earnest and so free spirited. He's going to train this horse no matter what. He's going to have this bond with this animal, whatever. But it sounds to me like we can chalk up his training methods to a little bit misrepresented for the sake of yeah compressing time and it's, simplifying it. It's definitely rushed, but I've seen better montages where it's like, you know, this is how I start with the bucket. You avoid me. Okay, let's start different. And then you see like a bunch of cut scenes together, like even just right. moments of him, you know, moving closer and closer, like a time lapse kind of deal. Yeah. Like even that I would have been like, look at you're seeing how long of a time it takes to train. I, I can appreciate why they wouldn't do it quite the same way as like incremental Rocky training montage where he mm -hmm. goes from struggling to thriving. And I think that's because thematically, the point is that he has a profound bond with the horse. Not that he's an expert yeah, trainer and he does everything fair. correctly. Because <laughs> the number of times he just gives a command and then says, understand? Oh my God, Kind yes. of made me crazy. Uh... Like he's trying to... Once he starts bonding with, with Joey, Albert's trying to teach him to stay like a dog. Yeah. So he says, stay and walks away and Joey walks towards him. So he goes, no, no, no. You've got to stay. Understand? Yeah. I started writing it down and then I just gave up because then he's, he's trying to teach him to yeah. come. You've got to come when I whistle. Understand? Yeah. I'm going to teach you and you're going to learn. Understand? It's like, all right, Samwise, yeah. enough. Well, and like one of the things as far as horses recognizing you and having a positive reaction or relationship like tone of voice is a big one i mean you can say that for any animal but there's research out there that it confirms that with horses really that your tone of voice and how you say things will determine how they react to you either positively or negatively so it's kind of like when you're reading to a young child like a mm -hmm. pre-literate child it yeah. doesn't really matter what you're saying but how you say it is yeah. communicating something to the audience exactly in this case the horse mm -hmm. yep i that gives him more credit than I was willing to. Yeah, I mean, at least the tone is good and they're not doing the whole, like, you know, angry horse driver type situation. That, that I appreciated, so too. Yeah. He only uses the whip once. 
For the plow, yeah. He does it reluctantly. And the way that the movie communicates it. So he's he's doing all this training montage stuff. It's maybe not the most effective training methods, but ultimately he's training it to come when called. His mm-hmm. call, which I can't really replicate. I but used he, to know how to do that dove oh, call. Oh, really? Yeah. They call it an owl call in the movie, I think. I always called it dove, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's that. You, you make a cup with your hands, palm yeah. to palm, and you put the thumbs together. Yeah. And kind of blow through the thumbs. Ugh, and it I used gives to you know. that kind of haunting, echoing. I used to know how to do it. I'm so upset. <laughs> we'll give it a shot later. Oh, God. I'll get lightheaded trying too hard. But that's their signature thing, right? Wherever yeah. wherever Albert wanders off to on their compound, on their farm, he can whistle mm-hmm. and Joey will come. And at one point, he's up in a tree and Joey's walking back and forth. And then finally, the camera pans up and they laugh together. <laughs> it's like, okay, they have a bond. Yeah. But then they and have to get call, to business. And that call is foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing. So... Again, they're they're fairly deliberate in the things that they show that show him training Joey mm-hmm. and the the thematic importance of what he's doing. So yeah, it come stay is going to come back up way way back at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. But the whole reason they got this horse was to have it plow a field. Yep. And this is a hill covered in grass, littered with rocks, and so everyone's like, "You're never going to be able to plow this, even if you had an ox or something." You wouldn't be able to plow this. And so, sure enough, Albert goes out there with Joey, tries to get him. First, he's got to get him into the yoke, which yep. takes a little bit of convincing mm-hmm. just to train him to put his head through and allow Albert to put the the harness on him to carry yeah. the plow. Mm-hmm. They get through that, and then he can't get Joey to go on command. He knows stay and he knows come, but he can't from behind drive the horse right to carry the plow and that drove me absolutely bananas because it's like okay you don't have to be the one on the plow like i mean maybe dad's injury prevents him but anyways that's the implication if if joey knows come and doesn't know go you can probably combine those two together to teach him go you have someone calling like come because he naturally already knows that behavior and then you slowly incorporate from behind the horse the word go okay so this is actually something else that i wanted to ask you because i think when you're training dogs you're trying to train them to respond to commands and not to a person yeah they make it seem like albert gets really far with joey because they have such a bond could someone else command Joey. I mean, I know that we kind of see that later in the movie when other people are able to train Joey to do other things. But I'm just curious with horses if it makes as much of a difference because you hear so much about horses bonding with their owner and they'll only Mm -hmm. let the one person ride them or whatever. How much of that is just storytelling? Different breeds of horses have different ways of interacting with their people. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, what I found about thoroughbreds is that they are a bit more indifferent to strangers. Other horses will be really? super fearful. Thoroughbreds are kind of like, meh, whatever. Huh. Um, but back to your question is, you know, I I think it's definitely possible because if you have someone with, you know, speaking the right language, you have that familiarity, especially if they're working with the horse alongside the owner, I do think it's possible to have multiple people be able to train the animal and have it have yeah. a similar reaction. I don't think it's entirely going to be across the board, but I think there's a lot of different ways to do it to yeah. elicit a 
reaction from different people. So partly it sounds the extent to which you account for that in your training and try to establish the expectation that you, you follow the command and not the person. Yes. Is it's just part of training. Yeah. With animals I've trained, I've brought in strangers to be like, Hey, ask them for this. And they do. And the animal instantly does it for them. Oh, really? Yeah. So sometimes they get it. They, or the command is delivered in a, familiar enough way that they understand what to do. It depends on the individual and just the situation and level of familiarity versus, you know, have I seen you before a bunch, but this is the first time you're asking me to do something or do I not know who you are and you're asking me for something? Right. Okay. Well, that, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) The way you explain it. (laughs) Yeah. He gets hooked up to the plow, plows the field in front of the entire, the entire town, town turns came out to watch to watch these schmucks try to try to plow yeah. with a thoroughbred. So miracle and horse. I have to say, this is England, right? This mm-hmm. is rural England. Yeah, these are farmers. He goes out there on the brightest, sunniest day of the year to try to plow uphill a grassy, rocky field, and he can't get the blade to cut the grass. He does eventually get Joey to start listening to him and driving the plow, but he's not really having success. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to rain. And as the soil gets saturated, suddenly the blade passes through so much easier. How do you not know that (laughs) as a farmer? How do you not know that a lubricant in the soil is going to make the blade go through more easily? When it starts to rain, the townsfolk start leaving because they're like, oh, it's over. It's raining. There's no way he's going to plow now. And sure enough, he doesn't give up and zip like butter, like or maybe chunky peanut butter because there's still rocks in there. But he's just going right through it. I'm just like, have you ever farmed before? How did you get in this place? <laughs> yeah, I remember you pointing that out and kind of it really having a moment me. about it. So yeah, plows, and then tragedy strikes. World War One breaks out. And then there's also some kind of storm that destroys all their crops that had flourished. Yes. So after after they successfully plow and remove all the rocks, Albert's father's plan was grow turnips in this new field. And with all the new acreage that they have to to farm, he'll be able to make rent on the farm to David Thewlis, their their landlord, and pay for the horse that he overpaid for at auction. And it seems just as the turnips are getting ready for harvest, there's just an absolute downpour. It floods everything. The things are popping out of the ground soaked. So by all accounts, they're ruined. So what does he do? He sells Joey to the English army as an officer's horse. Which is one of the main ways that horses were acquired for the World War I cavalry is you've got the requisition from civilians, you've got international supply from, you know, the U.S. and Canada and things like that. Sure. So you get a, a couple of different ways of doing it, which the British cavalry drew a lot of inspiration in, like, their doctrine from the Boer War. Mm-hmm. So with grandpa or dad or whoever being a vet from that war, understanding, like, the sacrifice you have to make. Right. You know, maybe he was cavalry, maybe not. But still, there's that similarity between... He, the function of these two wars. Yeah, he he recognizes the importance of cavalry. Well, <laughs> he understands what used to be the importance of cavalry. Because remember, yeah. 
the the operation of war from a technical standpoint really starts to advance dramatically at the turn of the 20th century. Yes. It should be said there were cavalry charges in World War II. Mm-hmm. Like they yeah. were riding horses in the deserts of Afghanistan in the 80s. So yeah. horses haven't been completely displaced from modern warfare. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the message of the movie and and part of popular imagination of the war is World War I is when you really started to see mechanized warfare. Yeah, the horses were really vulnerable and folks were definitely recognizing it. I think the British had a harder time recognizing it, but, you know, there's a long history there. But yeah, they're mainly used for logistical support. um, Right. As well as, you know, doing things like catching the enemy off guard, you know, you're, you're chilling, you're chilling in your camp, like drinking your coffee, whatever. And all of a sudden this huge horde of hearses just starts charging you. Like that is, it's a shock tactic. It's absolutely terrifying. And we see that with Joey's first war adventure in the movie is doing a shock tactic on a German camp. Right. So Joey gets sold to the army and a gentleman officer sees how cut up Albert is over losing his horse and promises to take good care of him. Can I add just like a really cute detail about horse acquisition? Oh, go for it. Lord Kitchener was uh, an army officer and colonial administrator. And there are a bunch of children who are really upset about giving up their ponies. And so he ordered that no horses under 15 hands should be seized because the children just wanted to keep their ponies. How very British. Oh my God. (laughs) I melted. Adorable. Yeah. Anyway, so he gets sold to Captain Nichols. AKA. AKA Tom Hiddleston. AKA Blonde Hiddleston. Yeah. Am I right? Sexy beast. He's got a a very well-coiffed blonde do going on. Mm-hmm. And he immediately seems to empathize with Albert's plight, losing his horse, and makes some assurances, you know, I'm going to take good care of him, he's going to be my personal horse. He writes him letters and sends him sketches. Yeah, he makes drawings of Joey. Yeah. So we meet uh, Captain Nichols. We see Joey go to his first horse camp. Obviously, he's nervous, freaked out. He's put in a small stable, like, that he's not really used to. And he's put next to his new buddy, a black stallion named Topthorn. Now, here's another of what seems to be a bit of sort of on-theme anthropomorphization. And this is where you really appreciate, no, no, the protagonist of this movie is Joey the horse, not Albert the person. But I feel like it's it's a trope in war movies that the the young sensitive recruit comes and meets some you know, gruff seasoned person at basic training and they end up bonding and competing and they help each other through it and they end up helping each other through the war, right? And that's what they're setting up between Joey and Topknot. Topknot? Topthorn? Topthorn. I keep messing up the name too. I'm trying really hard. And it should be noted, they don't distinctly say what breed Topthorn is, Mm -hmm. but he also looks like some kind of light horse thoroughbred. Similar maybe, size. Yeah. yeah, maybe some kind of gated horse, which are known for like long distance riding. They have rhythm. They have grace. Uh, beautiful animals. Beautiful. Oh. That's where you get like the walking horse from. Beautiful and that kind of horse. Thing. Gasp. Oh. <laughs> so by all intents and purposes, it seems like 
Topthorn is of a similar build to Joey. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have similar duties is what that comes down to. And it seems like Topthorn is kind of hazing Joey a little bit. There's a couple scenes where Topthorn kind of chomps at Joey's bit, you know, kind mm-hmm. of nips nips at his face. Yeah. Although I have to say, when whenever they're rearing or they're vocalizing at each other, it seems to me that I was confident that it was anthropomorphization going on because I feel like that's the audio doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Like you can have the horse get spirited and you can have it rear on camera, but I'm I'm sure that they're adding intensive whinnying and neighing to try to make it sound more, more dramatic and like the horse right. is more, you know, riled up than it actually was on set. Mm-hmm. And same thing when you see Topthorn kind of biting and nipping at Joey. When they're first meeting each other and they're first in stable together. It's like, I think the the horse was probably just looking at Joey and they added in the chomping noises to make it sound more snappy. I mean, they may have trained them to nip. But they're still still going to enhance that for dramatic effect. Oh, absolutely. No question. So Joey meets his new buddy. And we also meet the dude in charge of the cavalry camp uh, who is named Major Jamie Stewart, but he's played by... Bendy Toots Cucumber Pants. Benedict Benedict Cumberbatch Cumberbatch. for the rest of us. Yeah. (laughs) I can't not call him that. And he is extremely old-fashioned. He's very rigid. There's several asides where some of the other officers talk about being afraid of him because he's just so... He's got that intense Bendy Toots stare. Yeah, he's he's got a kind of emotionless face where he's just, he's so fixated on doing his duty to queen and country. I guess it would be king and country at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I did want to ask, because this is something that Albert brings up when he's basically begging not to have Joey sold to the military. And he's saying he wouldn't even be a good, he doesn't say war horse, but he's saying he wouldn't he wouldn't be good in the cavalry because he flinches at every sound. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's no reason for Albert to train him on too much sound desensitization on a farm. He's supposed to plow. That's his main job. How can you be basically drafting all of these horses into the cavalry and account for their training? Because I realize they don't fully understand at this point how mechanized World War One is going to be. But guns have been around for quite a while at this mm-hmm. point. There's been cap. There were guns when Napoleon was doing his thing in the 1800s. So mm-hmm. how do you get farm horses to stay on target in a cavalry charge? When they're not used to guns going off. What what does that look like? So I'm not sure exactly how they did it in wartime because they're acquiring like hundreds, thousands of horses. So it's like, are they really going to take the time to train everyone? No. But I, I would imagine there's this degree of some desensitization. You're also working with farm and draft horses who do have Mm -hmm. their own version of desensitizing. So like, for example, horses can be really sensitive to and upset about having their legs touch their pressure on their bodies, that kind of thing. But if you're plowing, you have that big thing on your neck, you're pulling, you've got all this other gear. If you're a riding horse, you have the saddle. So even if it's not the same as like charging in this big group and there's all these bodies around you, there is a little bit of that. As far as loud sounds, yes, horses are skittish. Again, depends on individual history and how they're wanting to do it. Like how much rush are they in to get the horses out? You know, what's the timeline of everything? But I did learn that horses 
do learn from others. Really? Yeah, I wasn't like sure about Like learning by this. watching other horses. Yeah, and so and you also have this. I don't know about horses, but in general, you have this whole herd mentality thing. Oh, right. So if there's a number of horses that are totally chill, ready to go with gunfire and bodies everywhere and swords and that kind of thing, you know, what are the likelihoods of other horses following? And then you have the horses at the back of the cavalry, kind of like a wave effect going through the ranks. Mm. Um, so I think that that kind of makes sense to me. There is like a whole training process for desensitizing horses and war horses and that kind of thing. But I don't know realistically what their timeline would have been. I doubt they did it that way. And I doubt, you know, who knows what their training methods would have been in the early 1900s either. Suffice to say, they don't really portray the training so much. We get one uh, practice charge just to kind of show that they are going through some kind of training with this new cavalry. I think practice charges are probably a big part of it and you know they're in stables that are really close together Mm -hmm. so does that have a role in desensitizing them to being super up close tight with other horses and then you just got to throw in noise which if they're doing shooting practice that'll do it even if they're Um, not out for a cavalry charge they're gonna start hearing yeah they're gonna check and they're gonna check and make sure their shit works um so i think all those things together make sense to me so it's just a ton of exposure, really. Yeah, There's that's a lot of desensitization training in general. Just exposure, repeated yeah. exposure. Yeah, and it's it's a very fine line to walk because you want to work toward desensitization, but the pace you go at matters, the intensity with which you use that pace matters, rewards matter, because you can, if you do it too hard too fast, you get learned helplessness which is basically the animal thinking, well, I'm trapped here. I can't get out. So this is just my life now. <laughs> and so that's a really negative situation to be in because they feel they have no choice over anything. They're just this whole, you know, I have nothing. Things are just going to happen to me. Jesus. And I have zero reaction to it. So people think they don't react. They're desensitized. And it's like, no, they're just, they don't know how to react anymore because their reactions don't matter. Right. God, that sounds incredibly dark. Learned helplessness is really awful, and it's something that can be a big problem in animal training if you don't do it right. Right. So it's like, oh, look, they do this behavior. Well, how did they get there, you guys? (laughs) So a little bit of a diversion here, but a story that I thought was interesting. Clint Eastwood, as a director, never yells action. Hmm. And the reason why is he did so many Westerns coming up, And the directors were always very boisterous whenever they would yell action. You know, they would scream it onto set or they'd use one of their little little bullhorns or whatever. And so if you had a setting with a Western where there's a bunch of horses or actors are on horses and they're all kind of queued up for their scene and then the director comes out and screams action, it would spook the horses, right? And they would throw throw off the setting. And so when Clint Eastwood started directing, he decided he wasn't going to make that same mistake, regardless of whether he was working with horses. Mm -hmm. So famously, whenever you hear an interview with an actor who's working with Eastwood for the first time, they'll they'll say, he doesn't yell action, he just says, go ahead. Oh. Right? That's precious. And it's all to do with not trying not to spook the horses. Yeah. I just thought that was a fascinating habit that... uh, Yeah kind of iconic director took up. And I wonder if like the way that you're saying it, that tone of voice is also more popular than just action. 
I so think, I wonder if there's something there too with just response to tone. Well, I think the megalomaniac director who was just an absolute tyrant on set, I think that started to die out sometime around when Kubrick was just violently abusing Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining. Well, but in general, I think, probably doesn't hurt that we have more women directing movies now too. Yeah. But I think the whole idea of the the aggressive, you know, Napoleonic director running things like he's making war when he's making a movie. Mm-hmm. I think that <laughs> that kind of falling out of favor and being proven ridiculous is mm-hmm. probably helping. But Clint Eastwood is of a different generation. And the fact that he's doing that that mm-hmm. way, I think is, yeah. I just think it's really cool. I agree. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, we're well into the movie at this point, but this is really... The first taste of war that we get is this cavalry charge. Yes, this shock tactic. They're lined up, ready to go. There's Um, a German encampment that appears undefended and just kind of out in the open. Our major calls the charge. They go in. It's like, it's either dawn or dusk. It's kind of that weird twilighty mood setting. And they charge in, catch... They These charge, folks way off guard. They they charge through tall grass from a forest into the mm-hmm. open where the camp is. Yeah. So they fully have the element of surprise here. Yes. And the shots of the horses in the tall grass just kind of appearing is oh my God. really cool. Just, just what a mood. Another of the dozens of incredible shots I remember throughout my, this movie. My heart started racing at that moment because it was like, oh shit, it is on. Okay. <laughs> Did you notice how sharp the swords looked? Yes. I don't know why it stood out to me, but normally I feel like you can tell they're using like a little flimsy fiberglass thing mm-hmm. or something. But these these swords looked like they meant business. Mm-hmm. Can I take you on a quick journey? Love that. Okay. World War One. Did you study it in school? Because I didn't. I mean, like a wee smidge, but then right? everyone's so ready to get into World War II. Exactly. As an American, you're so used to hearing about World War II because we love to talk about how we were the big hard heroes who went and saved the world, mm-hmm. right? That's the American narrative of World War II. There were American soldiers in World War One, yeah. but it's not something that really gets talked about as much because it was such a European-centric conflict, and it was such a colonial yeah. conflict. What was the attack on the U.S. that initiated our involvement? I can't remember. The it was Lusitania? A yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was a, a German U-boat attack. That was also when submarines were first yeah. kind of starting to become real yep, instruments yep. of war. So anyway, Spielberg, you know... Classic American loves his World War II stories, you know, Saving Private Ryan, hadn't really been interested in doing a World War I story. And when he finally picked up the script as something interesting to do while he was finishing up the adventures of Tintin, he is looking for resources to get some historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. But there's no Americans that are really big history buffs when it comes to World War I. Mm-hmm. So where does he turn to? Well... He's been working on The Adventures of Tintin with Peter Jackson's Weta films for all the special effects. Mm -hmm. And um, Andy Serkis, being the motion capture expert that he is, played a big part in the motion capture for The Adventures of Tintin. Yeah. So Spielberg ends up kind of becoming on good terms with Peter Jackson, who is a World War I expert. 
Oh, I love him. And he has possibly the single largest private collection of World War One memorabilia in the world. Oh, he's just so right? cool. <laughs> right? He's so cool. Amazing person. And so at his own expense, he sends three cargo ships full of all of his World War One stuff, not including the planes that he has. What? Over to England where they're filming on location. Oh, my God. And the sabers that they used in this cavalry charge were real World War I ah! British cavalry sabers. Ah! So blonde Tommy Hiddleston actually had, and Benedict Cumberbatch actually had in their hands, real sabers. I fucking love this. In Norman! Insane. <laughs> insane. But I think that's what makes this movie so incredibly compelling because not only is the animal stuff all really happening, all of it is really happening. Yeah. They did a real ass cavalry charge with real ass sabers. Yeah. Everything that you see, the horses rearing, the nipping at each other, mm -hmm. you know, down to the finest detail, it's real. But it just blew my yeah. mind that they had that level of attention to detail. Yeah. So real quick, fast forward, they charged the German camp. I have to say, the the Germans retreat from the camp into the forest, right? Yeah. And it turns out they had a defensive position set up in the forest yes. on the edge of their camp. With the terrain with horses, they uh, ended up winning. Yeah, they had a um, bunch of machine guns set up. And I feel like this is that first clash that you have between yes. mechanized warfare and the traditional cavalry charge. Yep. They get The British get absolutely mowed down. Uh, Benedict yep. Cumberbatch survives. And the German officer tears him apart mm -hmm. verbally for doing such a careless and outdated maneuver yep. before, you know, he finally surrenders yep. to the Germans. Um, and which, the Germans, mm. the Germans take the horses that are alive, which is a, an historically accurate thing. We uh, find to, out that Joey has lost his rider. Yep. Joey lost Tom Hiddleston. And so by proxy, Albert has lost his communicator mm -hmm. about Joey. We see, Two German brothers acquire both Joey and Topthorn. Yeah, there's an older brother who appears to be in some sort of cavalry-ish position. He's mm -hmm. the horse master for a, a particular group of German soldiers. Yeah. And he has a younger brother who is apparently going to be an infantryman. Yep. And I think is only 14 and is yeah. kind of snuck into the army. Yeah. You know, on, on point of patriotism, mm -hmm. which... Another element that is very factually accurate, it's very all quiet on the Western Front, that you have all these young boys who've been hearing about the glories of these war campaigns and these colonial expeditions all their lives. Can't wait, can't wait. And then World War I comes around, and it's an absolute nightmare. Yep. So. Anyway. So older brother is really upset that younger brother is going to be sent to the front lines. Mm -hmm. They end up running away together on Joey and Topthorn. Obviously, this is pissing off the German army. Well, it's desertion. Army. Exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a crime. So they're on a manhunt. They uh, end up at this farm a where they can hide. French farmhouse, it should be said. Yes, a French farmhouse where they can hide the horses, but the Germans find them, execute the two boys, uh, but they can't find the horses. Right. And the farm belongs to a lovely little girl named Emily and her grandfather, who is credited as grandfather. Yeah. 
So she has a positive relationship with this horse. Yes, she um, discovers them in the old windmill where the mm-hmm. brothers had been hiding. Yes. And so they become her horses. Yeah. She's very she's very sweet on them because she's sickly. So yeah. Emily is maybe not healthy enough to ride, but eventually grandfather relents after, it should be said, German soldiers come through and take all the jam that they make on their farm. Mm-hmm. So the Germans are just taking everything as they go through the countryside on their way to the front. And when she finally gets to Mount Joey and go for a quick ride up the hill, she immediately runs into the German army. Yes. They see the horses. They take her off the horse, send her back home with grandfather. And Joey and Topthorn are in the German army now. Yep. Which is a grisly, grisly scene where they're at. This might be... I don't know if it's the single toughest sequence in the movie, but it's definitely up there. It was my single toughest. They explicitly say the horses are here to move big guns. They're here yeah. to move equipment. They're moving until artillery. They die. Yeah. They're going to work these horses until they die. Yep. They're right up near the front, which means it's it's muddy, the terrain is absolute crap. Yep. You and these horses dead. have to pull these you know, I don't know how big these cannons are, but big, mm-hmm. big modern cannons. You've got horse corpses all over the fucking place. Like, you can definitely yeah. see this air of fearfulness in both Joey and Topthorn. Yeah, they, they communicate the anxiety very well. And you can kind of see the power has shifted at this point. They're not just friends at this point. Joey is, you know, through very anthropomorphized selective editing and sound editing, reassuring Topthorn mm-hmm. and being like, no, no, we're in this together. Remember, we came up through right. basics. Just we survived the cavalry solidarity. charge. Yeah. And so they get put to work hauling these guns up a hill. And I mean, they're going through horse after horse, just trying to move, what is it, like a half dozen uh, however many yeah. big guns up a hill. Yeah. And again, they never show blood. They don't show bullets going into bodies. But still pretty explicitly, they show how once a horse has kind of given up the ghost, they take the yoke off of it, pull it to the side, shoot it, mm-hmm. you know, put it out of its misery, mm-hmm. and then call up a new horse. Yep. And I don't remember if they ever gave this character a name, but the German horse master who is responsible for corralling all these horses and coordinating the the dragging of the equipment up the hill clearly hates his job. He clearly mm-hmm. loves horses, which is probably why he's good at working with them, and has to just put them through this meat grinder. Mm, you, yeah. you feel for him. You feel for the horses. There are some grotesque close-ups of the horses' feet as they're going up. You know, it looks like 45 degrees. It's it is a steep intense. hill. It's muddy, and they barely are getting purchase, and they're pulling these guns up. And it should be said... The infantry are also helping push and pull the guns up, too. Yeah, fuck them, though. So I just mean it, it visually communicates <laughs> no, I how know. heavy it is very, I know. very effectively. I just love animals more than I love people. Yeah, it is. It's, it's gnarly. It's fucking rough. And you already kind of covered this, but this is another explicit example where they show us uh, Topthorn learning by watching Joey. Mm-hmm. Because when the Germans That's pull right. them up to carry the guns up the hill. I forgot about this part. It's kind of like carrying a plow, right? So they have to put the yoke around them. And Topthorn is not into it as mm-hmm. a cavalry horse. Yeah. But Joey basically volunteers. You know, he breaks free and runs up to where they're trying to harness Topthorn. 
and puts his little nose through the yoke and says, yep, I know how to be a plow horse. I'm going to carry your guns up the hill. And at that point, Topthorn, seeing Joey do this, also allows himself to be put into the harness to pull the guns. And Topthorn's a little bit bigger and better built than Joey, so he's selected first. Yeah, that was their initial choice. Yep. And the German horse master, you can tell he's trying to just save one. Well... He's he's trying to volunteer horses that he thinks can survive and not expire the younger or the the leaner ones. Yeah, but he's well, just got no options. It's crazy because I mean, likely he has no options. But knowing how you use horses in war, that needs to be a draft horse, and these two horses clearly are mm-hmm. not. And so it's a matter like I recall seeing draft horses also hooked up. Oh yeah, but it's. If they're running low on horses, which are a hot commodity in wartime, mm-hmm. part of the downfalls with, I mean, there are many downfalls for Germany within this war, but at the, uh, there, one of the things that was really effective for defeating Germany by holding off their supplies was the blockade of Germany. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, it, as a blockade, it blocks many a thing that you can import, but one of those is horses. Right. And so they are losing that ability to haul their artillery and be effective with cavalry and be able to have generals and officials on horseback to quickly relay messages mm-hmm. and lead their troops and that kind of thing. So they are starting to scrape the barrel on their horses at this yeah. point. Which Even, I think then makes, knowing that history for me makes sense that they're just trying to use bodies at this point. Exactly. They they don't labor the fact too much, but it's one of those, one of many things in this movie where there's deep, deep history being represented very accurately, mm-hmm. but it's also a sort of cursory thing where they're like, well, not a draft horse, but it's what we got. Load them up. We got to get this gun to the top of the hill. Yeah. And for context, as far as like the hot commodity of horses... By the end of the war, Britain had purchased over 400,000 horses. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of bonkers. Britain alone, it Brit- should be yes, said. Yes, Britain alone. Yeah. yeah. It's, That's a lot of horses. The thing that really made it devastating for me, it wasn't even when they're killing the horses, you know, euthanizing them basically when they fall. Mm-hmm. But when they finally get to the top and you just are breathing the sigh of relief, like, oh, thank fuck, they finally made it. You know, they, they unhook the horses and then they just line up the guns and just start blowing up the town in front of them. Yeah. They just unleash all this heavy artillery. Yeah. And it's just one of many times where the movie doesn't say anything, but it's very clearly asking, is is it worth it? Yeah. For all that work for this, yeah. was it worth it? Yep. And uh, by this point as well, our buddy Topthorne doesn't look good and... Topthorn, as promised, has been worked to death. Yep. He and falls and go shot. under a little bridge. He doesn't even have to shoot Topthorn because Topthorn oh, lies yeah. down and just gives up. Yep. And you can see, again, Joey is trying to encourage him and egg him on, you know, get back up. Can't it do it. It was Black Beauty all over again for me, which was <laughs> a very traumatic moment in my life was getting to that scene in that book. Like, I'm pretty distraught. I did find some information on horse care during wartime. 
There um, was horse care during wartime? Yes, there was. So they had some vet hospitals set up to treat huh. some injuries. Shell shock is a thing in horses, too. Yeah. The Blue Cross Fund helped with medical work and supplies and that kind of thing. You know, obviously, they don't know anything about horses, so they kind of just learn on the fly. They do end up... Figuring out a lot of information. Uh, one of the things they emphasized was keeping the horses well-groomed. They get covered in mud. Matted mud causes like skin issues. Uh, you can get yeah. mange, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then they're ready for battle. You know, there's rubbing from the harnesses and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So making sure you're taking care of their fur and skin. The vet team did a lot of inspections on the daily. So in World War One. The equine medical care was superior to any of the previous conflicts, so there was <laughs> progress there for caring for their horses. And because of that, the British Army only lost about 15% of their horses annually. Wow. Which is, like, pretty impressive, all things considered, as far as them just willy-nilly throwing together these folks for equine care who just happen to be doing the right thing and learning. Yeah. And they end up, I believe they end up, like, writing down the work that they're doing and the things that they're learning. Well, it should also be said that modern nursing was more or less born during World War One as well. That too. So it is mm-hmm. fascinating that that parallels mm-hmm. veterinary care really yeah. taking off and becoming yeah. much more sophisticated. Yep. So. but And horses, one of the things horses pulled were ambulances. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, ambulance drivers. So it doesn't have to be all bad gun shooty shooty with what the horses are doing <laughs> they're pulling ambulances <laughs> so there's there's more to the picture than what we're getting to see in this movie mm-hmm. but this movie and this is where i was really wrong because i had gone into it thinking oh this is going to be kind of a boyish family friendly slash kids movie i won't say it's not family friendly because it's just like this is a, mm-hmm. a historically accurate film and it features some young characters yeah but it's pretty rough like i said there's no there's not really any blood for the most part, you don't yeah. see bullets going in and out of flesh or anything like that. And they don't even shoot Topthorn, like we said. Topthorn yeah. just kind of gives up. Your mileage may vary on whether that's more traumatizing for a young person to watch. It was traumatizing for me. I know it was. Freaking hell, man. And when they're about to move out, right after Topthorn has has lined, laid down to die... That's when Joey kind of gets set free by the German horse master who's just had enough. And Joey just runs for it. And this is that sequence. It's kind of the guy setting him free, but it's also Joey just horse instinct. Fuck this shit. I'm running away. Yeah. Once his buddy is dead, it's kind of like, well, I have have nothing left to prove. I have nothing to lose. I got to look out for me now because that could be me. And so so Joey runs through barbed wire, row he's, after row, into no man's he's land. jumping tanks and yeah, just Yeah, at one like, point, uh, I'm still on the fence about how I feel about that sequence. <laughs> where Joey kind of gets cornered in a, in a kind of trenchy area by a German tank. And as the tank kind of goes over a bump and its nose goes down, Joey runs forward, runs up the the front and the roof of the tank and doesn't really jump over it, but kind of runs across it and jumps off the back. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing that in the previews. Same. And that was what had me going like, oh, a a boy and his horse, and they go jumping (laughs) off tanks and, you know, doing cool 1080s. Like, (laughs) this is going to be a stupid movie. There's more to it than that. Totally. So I I am a little bit on the fence about that, but it's it's the chase scene, right? Yeah. So Joey's freaking out. I don't think Joey is knowingly going toward British lines. Yeah. 
But as it turns out, when Joey gets completely hamstrung, well, not hamstrung, Joey gets completely caught up in the barbed wire in no man's land. Mm -hmm. A lot of that they did with the real horse. Yeah. And the barbed wire was rubber. Yep. And again, this is where the sound effects are doing a lot of work because you can hear the the clang and the the snapping and releasing of metal wire. Mm -hmm. And so that sound goes a long way to you being like, Oh boy, this Ouchie. horse is really getting yeah. torn up by this barbed wire. So the culmination of this kind of pseudo chase sequence through No Man's Land is just through sheer power and panic and inertia, Joey is busting through line after line of this razor wire, but finally stumbles, gets caught on a line, flips over. Yeah, that's the CGI is he flips over onto his back. And you know, I don't think it's even fully CGI. Because as soon as Joey lands, he's thrashing around because he's tangled mm -hmm. in the in the razor wire. And for a lot of that, they actually used puppets. Really? Yeah, they used a combination of real horses for, I think, mostly when it's on all fours and actually running. Yeah. And, you know, rubber, stunt wire, that kind of thing. A little bit of CGI stitching. Mm -hmm. So they go from a real horse to, oh, Joey, you know, has to hit this line and flip. Can't get a real horse to do that. It would absolutely die. <laughs> so they they transition a little bit with CGI for the more extreme shots. Mm -hmm. And then once it lands, it's a puppet. And they yeah. have like a whole team of puppeteers. It's <laughs> I thought this was cool as hell. It's such a sophisticated puppet that underground where they have the team with, you know, all their controls kind of controlling the rig and an animatronic head that's controlled by three different people so that, mm. it, you know, can blink its eyes and move it, show its teeth and all that. They had a kettle. A little water kettle. Huh. And it would boil water and send it up through tubes so that they could hit an exhale button and steam would come out oh the nose to make it look like it's cold and it's, you know, water vapor from its breath. This is like Kermit drinking a glass of milk. Through a straw. Through a straw. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was just like, man, Jim Henson was really onto some with oh, totally. the filmmaking possibilities of puppets. Jim Henson walked so that Spielberg and others could run. And just the truth. Mm. So anyway, this is it's one of the more grisly scenes in the entire movie. Not a ton of blood, but if you if you know that there's razor wire in no man's land and that's mm -hmm. it's not just fencing that he's running through, but it's that. Yeah. Psychologically, it's a tough scene to watch. Yeah. And mileage will vary for different people. I assume you're familiar with the Christmas truce of 1914. Um yeah, that's when they come together on Christmas and give up war exactly. times to have a moment of celebration for yeah. the holiday. Accounts vary a little bit, but the general story is you got the British on one side and you got the Germans on the other. They hear each other singing carols. They get into kind of a carol off <laughs> where they're both singing back and forth. And eventually they come up and they exchange treats. They play soccer. Yeah. They sing songs together. And this happened at different times in different places along the front, but that's kind of the famous story. Yeah. And we see kind of shadows of that here where both sides see and hear Joey trapped in the barbed wire on no, in no man's land. The British start, you know, doing the little click to try to get Joey to come to their side. The Germans start whistling to try to get Joey to come to their side. Yeah. Then the British start whistling. And then one guy finally goes on the British side, I'm going to wave my white flag. Yeah. Crawl out of the trench, see if I don't get shot, yes. and try to set the horse free. Yep. 
And this character is named Colin. Yeah, this is Colin. Another character on the German side had a similar thought, and he actually brought wire cutters. Mm -hmm. So they end up working together, using the wire cutters to remove the barbed wire, the razor wire, and just all this nastiness off of Joey. And they're talking to Joey, and they just kind of bond over trying to rescue this poor horse. And in the end, they can't decide who should get to bring the horse back to their Mm -hmm. side. So they flip a German mark, and England wins. Colin gets to take Joey. So Colin takes Joey back to his side, and... (laughs) (laughs) And so one of the things is that horses did boost morale in World War I, like Mm -hmm. when they were at, at camps and that kind of thing, and... A horse isn't well suited for a trench, so could you imagine being a trenchman and a horse shows up, you know, oh, beautiful horse. Beautiful animal. Oh. Oh. (laughs) And so, and you can tell it, it boosts their morale of, you know, oh my God, how did a horse get here? We saved him. Yeah. In the same way that the German horse master kind of let Joey get away mm -hmm. because he was just so tired of being a part of the carnage, you can kind of see both sides are willing to stop shooting for a minute to get this horse rescued. The German is who helped Colin, you know, Peter, who helped Colin rescue the horse, is willing to peacefully let the horse go because it's just like, damn it, we need a win. Right. You know, we just, we need one good story that we can tell. Mm -hmm. And so Joey and Colin go back off to the British side. We later find out, kind of out of sequence, we find out that Albert has grown up. It's gone from 1914 to 1918, so we're in the waning days of World War I. Albert has to go through one of those horrible but iconic trench charges where they go mm-hmm. up the walls and they go into the German side. And again, it's it's hard to make an anti-war movie because it's so exciting. So mm-hmm. what do they do after the horrors or the action of this charge across no man's land but set off rounds of mustard gas? In the trench, the German trench that yes. they just captured. They did at one point make these little nose plugs for horses mm-hmm. for when the, the gas was present. Horsey they, gas masks. They also like at one point had this burlap sack or what have you that they would put around their muzzle, but then the horses starting started like destroying them. <laughs> <laughs> like chewing through them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they were doing their best to keep horses from getting poisoned unnecessarily yeah we unfortunately don't get to see any of that equipment in action or maybe fortunately because that would be hard to watch i was gonna say i feel pretty fortunate about that one but it's another example of the kind of casual nod to historical accuracy where you see chemical warfare really being used in earnest at scale Mm -hmm. for kind of a, a global first And uh, long story short, Albert gets caught in a mustard gas explosion and is temporarily blinded. And it's at this point where he's in the infirmary back Mm -hmm. on the British side of the trench. And Joey is being brought. Yeah. And they can't find a vet. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that they did have vets. Mm -hmm. Because when they get to the infirmary and... Colin is asking for help for Joey because Joey got cut up by all the barbed wire and stuff. He's he's got a lot going on. He's he's walking. He doesn't seem to have any broken bones, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But he's in a rough way. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're looking to get some help. And the doctor there is like, 
look, I'm barely holding it together and I'm not a veterinarian. Like, yeah, I, which like, I cannot help why you. would they have a vet in a trench? <laughs> well, <laughs> in the yeah. trench, perhaps not, but yeah. or, to your point, there were yeah, or any vets. other Or any other kind of doctor that has some, you know, some of the horse training. Yeah, horse medicine. <laughs> but Albert suspects that the, the horse that he hears, you know, clanking through the trenches and being led to the infirmary. Yeah. Just might be his special horse. Well, and, and just like his general attitude of hopefulness and optimism is just, he hears, oh, a horse showed up in the trenches. My horse went to war. I wonder. I wonder. Yeah. And so what does he do? But his little... His little oh. dove call. Oh, my God. Oh. Beautiful. <laughs> it's like I'm there. <laughs> and, you know, Joey comes to him, but Joey's all covered in mud. And so, since he can't see the horse, Albert describes his markings. That little white blaze on the forehead and then the four white feet. Four white socks. So then they start washing the mud off and it is indeed those markings. And one of the reasons that this is important in this scene, other than the happy reunion that we've all been waiting for, is that Joey does have a a decent little injury to his leg, like a pretty good gash. Mm -hmm. And they were going to shoot him. So because gun the gun was out, the gun yeah. was out. I believe the bullets were loaded. Yeah. Um. And the thing is that leg injuries and in horses are really bad news bears. What's the deal with that? Deal with that is they're just animals on their feet all the time, mm. and their legs are skinny. They got wee little legs. They're so muscular that not being able to move is really detrimental if you've got one leg that can't move you're gonna have muscle atrophy it's just it's really difficult and there were horses in world war one that were being killed because of leg injuries where it's basically like a horse comes into you know wherever where there's doctors they see a leg injury that doesn't look too hot and they just shoot them they're like this isn't worth our time to treat yeah, we um, don't have the resources even necessarily yeah, to see, exactly. when see you, this through the way it would need. Yeah, when you get a nasty infection like that, you're going to compromise the leg, which horses really need legs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, fair. And, uh, you know, you could get into sepsis territory. So as as big and tough as they are, the legs are the Achilles heel of the horse, effectively. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we will get to that movie dreamer about the broken leg and the horse like yeah we're we'll get there as far as horse leg time but for the purposes of joey and the war horse film once they realize he's been reunited with his owner Mm -hmm. again just like the christmas truce just like colin and peter kind of uniting across the german and british trenches to rescue joey they just go damn it we need a win this is a good story let the poor mustard gas-faced kid have his horse back. Mm-hmm. And, and so they do not kill Joey. And at that point, or shortly thereafter, they're announcing the war is over. Yeah, very shortly after that, they ring the bells at the church, announcing that the war is over. And then we get even more bad news, yes. which is that the British army is going to be, once again, auctioning off all the horses that they bought. Which is historically accurate. Unless... It belongs to an officer. There were a number of folks in the army who had to give up their horses. Right. I didn't find info on the higher ranking folks, which, you know, could be accurate. But it is. That would be this was a British. really common thing. If they weren't auctioned, they were killed 
depending on age and injury, uh-huh. illness. Some of the horses were sold to slaughterhouses. I, I know that's a really negative stereotype, um, but it's been wartime and France has had fronts on both sides. Yeah, like, but, they slaughtered horses for me. Oh, but that horse is so beautiful. Such a beautiful animal. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, Albert is really upset. End of the war. There's not a lot he can do. But, um, but grandfather shows up. And Bed's, Bet's just an insane amount of money to he get puts this horse. A hundred pounds, I believe. Something like that. Or something, yeah. Because of his granddaughter. And so Albert goes to talk to the grandfather, and grandfather did this because we find out Emily has died. Yeah. And which so. We don't know how it happens off screen. We know she wasn't totally healthy. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if it's that yeah. or the war or what. But grandfather's cut up about it, and this horse, Joey, has just become an attachment that he has. Yeah, it's like, he said it's one of the remaining ties he has to his daughter, or granddaughter, which right. is heart-wrenching. Pretty Which, rough. Albert, his kind soul, was okay with that, and she's like, you know, you you keep uh, Joey, he deserves to be with you. But, but <laughs> as grandfather starts leading Joey away... Joey breaks his reins free from his grip and runs back to Albert, mm-hmm. who can see at this point. Yes, he's, yes. he's unbandaged again, mm-hmm. and which then is pretty much yeah what we saw. It's it's full circle at this point yep. as far as just showing the the strength of their bond. And you see Albert walking Joey back to his home, back to mom and dad. And we go again from the kind of grittier handheld camera work back to big sweeping vistas. The Western, you know, coming back to the old plantation house. God, what a beautiful movie. Yeah. I actually struggle to think of a more beautifully shot Spielberg movie. Mm. Like, he's no slouch when it comes to visuals and photography in his movies. Mm -hmm. This might be top of the list for me. Oh, wow. Just incredibly good looking movie. really well done. Like, some of the... I remember some of the shots. There's that awesome transition we saw. Yeah, yeah. The mom is knitting. She's knitting. And the camera zooms in on the fabric that she's knitting Just and the rows. There's the, yeah, of, the individual rows yeah. of the yarn. And there's a very slow fade as it transitions into the rows of the ground that were being plowed by Joey oh. and Albert. One of my, I think that was one of my favorite movie transitions I've ever seen. <laughs> Not <laughs> going to lie. One. It was yeah. a good one. So before oh. this is over, I had one little Easter egg that I wanted to share with you. Yes. Uh, I was waiting to see if you were going to bring it up. Mm-hmm. But there's that shot. As they're charging out of the trenches, we get a shot of the trenches with nobody left, right, Mm -hmm. on the British side. Nobody but the rats. Mm -hmm. And apparently, because everything in this movie is real, they they did it for real. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of trickery going on. They got real rats and just turned them loose Ah! on the trench sets. And here's the funny thing. We were talking about hair and makeup for the horses and having to cover them with mud or Mm -hmm. paint them so that they had matching markings and stuff. Well, they had hair and makeup for the rats, too. (gasps) Beautiful baby. But it turned out to be a complete waste because they would try to cover them with like mud and stuff mm-hmm. to show like, oh yeah, these things live in the trench. But anytime they put mud they on groom? the rats, they just started grooming themselves and they would wipe all the makeup off. They're perfect as is. They don't need makeup. <laughs> For people out there, rats are my favorite animal. Mm-hmm. So if they're brought up, this is going to be my reaction. We will get to Willard at some point mm-hmm. and cue me losing my mind I'm gonna have I'm gonna have baby voice the whole time. Yeah, I, it's oh, gonna be tough. Yeah, but I just thought it was funny that 
these guys are all covered in mud and blood and everything's horrible. Mm-hmm. And then you look down the trench and here's this gaggle of, you know, five or six bright white rats just yeah. running around in the trench living their best lives. Yep. And that's why. Talk about the uh, role reversal there. Mm-hmm. People are the nasty things and the rats The are rats were the clean ones. Clean. It's wonderful. So that's War Horse. It is... A lot better than I expected it to be. An incredible movie. Probably my favorite so far of what we've watched. Well, of what we watched, two have been Spielberg and in classic fashion have knocked the other two out of the park. Yeah. We're going to have to... I'm not sure how high the bar was really for the other two. (laughs) They kind of, you know... Expectations were low. But I went into this with very low expectations Mm -hmm. and I was completely blown away. Yeah. So the question, as always, is how many Bubsy points for War Horse? So... I am going to call this a German Shepherd. Again, okay. I feel like I'm on the nose a lot with dogs, but I think there's a a lot of ties and just comparisons to be made. Yeah, do um, tell. Why German Shepherd? I chose German Shepherd for a couple reasons. Because of the whole, oh, they're majestic. Like oh, you the... see, you see people look at German Shepherds and be like really Ooh, blown away by them. Now that's a beautiful dog. I mean, there's other dog breeds like that too, but German Shepherds are one of them. Okay. And they're known... For being service dogs to True. police, military, that kind of thing. So yeah. it's kind of like, they help us. Oh my God, they're majestic. They're wonderful. <laughs> um, but then you have this whole thing of, wow, this is a smart animal. It's trained to do so many different things. Mm-hmm. How hard could it be? But, you know, horses uh... are difficult to train because they're prey animals. They're big. The safety concerns are absolutely bonkers yeah. with a large animal like they that. They don't have to be aggressive to cause serious harm mm-hmm. to someone because they get flighty or yeah. s- spooked by a sound or something. And German Shepherds can be really difficult to train because they're so smart. They're really mm. smart. They know how to manipulate people. They're really high-strung, energetic dogs, so you have to exercise them or else you're going to end up with a neurotic animal in your house. Is it your contention that horses are intelligent and prone to neuroticism uh yeah you can get really high-strung horses really there are some breeds that are more high-strung than others um and so not to say that something high-strung can't be trained well it just takes you kind of have to modify your method which is true of any animal or individual is you got to be able to adapt with training and so german shepherd you have this idea of how smart they are they're good working dogs they do some really cool things but you have to put a lot of work into it it's kind of like doing the desensitization with horses with loud sounds and that kind of thing you have to really put in the time and know what you're doing there are some folks that i know who have german shepherds that are just amazing pets Mm -hmm. and you can tell they know what they're doing based on that work yeah, and they know how to work with the breed and what they need. And then you get the German Shepherds that are just monsters. And, you know, they're a big dog. Like, having a big dog running around your house not listening to you is yeah. very difficult and, yeah. Overwhelming, yeah. Yeah, so. All right. I stand by that. So Warhorse gets a German Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Well, good deal. Yeah. Well, I hope we can go find some beautiful horses to look at. Oh, just staring at them, watching them run. Uh, Mm. Yep. That's what I like. Mm, Same Z's. 